Second Kings chapter 12. There's no such thing as too much scripture on integrity, whether it deals with money or spiritual matters or whatever it might be. And to study it is one thing, to teach it is another thing, but to practice it in our lives is the goal of both the study and the teaching. Otherwise, we waste our breath whenever we teach. So let's continue in our study this morning of the repairing of the breaches of the house of the Lord. And as all of our messages are, they're verse by verse. We go in order. We begin at the beginning and end whenever the book is over, and then we take up another one. So the lessons are all recorded on Facebook, and if you need to go back and refresh your memory about what we talked about last week, well, go ahead. When you get home or uh, when you go to the park this afternoon, you can listen to that. But we're in verse 16, so let's read. The trespass money and the sin money was not brought into the house of the Lord. It was the priests. Now, we looked at the new system of accounting that Jehoash, the king, put into place because the priests had not been faithful with the money that was brought into the house of the Lord to repair the breaches. So the priests were moved aside, as it were, and they were no longer to receive money from their acquaintances, but the money was to be brought directly to the house of the Lord, put into a chest that had a whole board in the top of it, and then once that chest was full, the money was taken out, and we saw that it was counted by at least two people, that double accountability, which is a great principle in business and economics, to have many honest counters looking at the money so it doesn't slip under the cracks. And that's what happened. And then that money was given directly to the ones who oversaw the repairing of the breaches of the temple, those supervisors of the, the masons. I'm not talking about the Masonic Lodge. I'm talking about the stone masons and the carpenters and so forth. And so that brought us here to verse 16 because we've been talking about money offerings that were dedicated to a particular project, the repairing of the breaches of the house. Now we need to look at this trespass money and the sin money. And although lots of attention has been given to the money repairing the breaches of the house, the trespass and sin money must not be forgotten. This verse tells us that it was kept separate from the money used for the repairs. And so there are at least two things we might learn about these different classes of money or offerings that were brought in. <clears throat> Number one... Although the repairs of the breaches were in focus during the last few weeks, the other work must not be left undone. You remember what Jesus told those Pharisees? He says, you tithe of mint, anise, and cumin, and omit the weightier matters of the law, mercy and judgment. And he said, these ought ye to do and not leave the others undone. So in other words, he didn't say forget about all that. He said do that and do this. And that's what we might glean from the continuation of the trespass and the sin offering. Something that should have been taking place continually 
from the giving of the law all the way to this point. And as we know, Israel and Judah failed miserably in keeping the Lord's commandments. So the people are not to stop bringing in money for the trespass and the sin offerings. In Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 15, we go back to the original commands about these offerings. Leviticus 5 verse 15 And if you want to just write that down in case you can't get to it, at least you can read it later. But I'll read it aloud now. If a soul commit a trespass and sin through ignorance in the holy things of the Lord, then he shall bring for his trespass unto the Lord a ram without blemish of the flocks with thy estimation by shekels of silver after the shekel of the sanctuary for a trespass offering. So we're reading about trespass money, and that's where you get that from. It's not the only place you get it from, but it lets you know there was money associated with the trespass offering. And it's very interesting that it was silver and not gold. Silver is the type of redemption in the Bible. And so there was a ram and there was some silver that was to be brought for this trespass, this sin through ignorance. And then another passage, just a little bit longer, is found in Numbers chapter 5, Numbers chapter 5 and verse 10. Now, before I read that, look back at your text at the end of verse 16, because it says of this trespass money and this sin money, it was the priests. So there was a part of this that went to the priests. Now read the chapter uh, 5, verses 5 through 10 there in Numbers. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel. When a man or woman shall commit any sin that men commit to do a trespass against the Lord, and that person be guilty, then they shall confess their sin which they have done, and he shall recompense, that means pay it back, his trespass with the principle thereof, and add unto it the fifth part thereof. Now that means 20% on top of the original amount. And give it unto him against whom he hath trespassed. But if the man have no kinsman to recompense the trespass unto, let the trespass be recompensed unto the Lord, even to the priest. So there you go, even to the priest. Beside the ram of the atonement, whereby an atonement shall be made for him, And every offering of all the holy things of the children of Israel, which they bring unto the priest, shall be his. And every man's hallowed thing shall be his. Whatsoever any man giveth the priest, it shall be his. So this is just to reinforce the reason that the trespass and sin money would go to the priest in our text. It's already been commanded back during Moses' time. So the trespass and the sin money are to be paid in those days, for certain types of sins, like a a sin of ignorance, or as in the passage we read in Numbers, it looks like some kind of financial sin where you rook somebody out of some money somehow. But other sins in the Old Testament were dealt with by the death penalty. There wasn't any bringing an offering. That, That person was to be taken outside the camp and executed, and of course you can read all about that in those first uh, in Leviticus and Exodus. But the point here is, just because extra money was needed for the repairs of the breaches, the sin and trespass offerings were not to be diminished. 
Now, a second truth we learn from this verse is that the money for the repairs of the breaches of the house was a temporary offering. It was a temporary offering. We discussed much about why there were breaches because somebody didn't take care of a breach. Then there was another one and another one. And then they expanded into all types of breaches, such as those that would involve stonework to repair and those that would involve carpentry to repair. So through and through, the house of the Lord was not being taken care of. And in any case, these breaches, once they were repaired, would be no longer breaches. And the need for such a large sum of money and a large pool of skilled laborers would no longer arise again if they took care of the house of the Lord like they should. So if the small things are taken care of in the house of the Lord and not allowed to turn into big things, then you don't have to have this big offering for the repair of all these breaches because they never become breaches. You see a breach, you take care of it right then. And the sin and the trespass offerings, on the other hand, would be permanent for the children of Israel because there was always a need for them. And when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross... He put away the need for the animal sacrifices, for the, the bringing of that trespass money, that sin money, to be brought to the priests. But he did not put away the trespass or sin offering itself. He just became it for all of us. He became that offering for us. So the, the money that people bring down here for their tithes and offerings and put in the plate is not to forgive their sin. And as one person said one time, I, I feel sorry for this person, but this person said, well, I guess I better pay my dues. That person doesn't understand what tithing and, uh, and giving of offerings is. So now if you commit adultery, you don't go to the priest in the temple. You go through Jesus for forgiveness. Isaiah 55 verses 1 through 3. Isaiah 55 verses 1 through 3. He wrote... Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear and come unto me, here and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. So the, the paying of the actual money, the trespass and the sin offering, just know that was a temporary thing. And Isaiah said, the ones who thirst now, you come and you don't have money. You buy and eat without money. And this was part of the everlasting covenant. We'll not spend a lot of time teaching on it this morning. We have before and it'll come up again. But because of that everlasting covenant that God established, even the sure mercies of David, Jesus has taken on himself that which the law could not do. And he accomplished that which the sin money and the trespass money could not do. 
It could not take away sin. That's why they had to keep bringing it, keep bringing it, keep bringing it. You had to have the morning and the evening sacrifice and the high day of atonement every year over and over and over until Jesus fulfilled that law. Now at the end of verse 16, we're back in our text. If you're just joining us online, 2 Kings chapter 12 and verse 16. It was the priests, speaking of the trespass and the sin money. If they did their jobs, God was going to take care of all their needs. He gave them something to do. Remember, he called those Levites away from the secular affairs of the world, and they had courses, tours of duty that they performed in certain jobs they performed in the temple. And he gave, it, gave those jobs to the various tribes. You know, this tribe here, whenever the, you pull up the stakes and you carry the tabernacle, this is before the temple, you carry the tabernacle through the wilderness, you fellows over here, here's what you're carrying. You don't get to carry this over here. That belongs to this tribe. And so they all had a job. And there was always a need for the priests because the people were always sinning. <laughs> and even in their sin, God showed them a pattern. How he would one day send a lamb to die as a sin offering for mankind. And in those days, the priest represented God to the people and represented the people back to God through the sacrifices. But this is what Jesus does for us and will throughout eternity. We no longer have a need for a high priest because he is our high priest who's been touched with the feeling of our infirmities, the Bible tells us. Now let's look in verse 17. And we have a big shift in uh, subject matter here. We've dealt with the breaches of the house of the Lord, and now we move on to the larger picture of what's going on in Israel. It says, Then Hazael, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. And Hazael set his face to go up to Jerusalem. To Jerusalem. Now we were introduced to King Hazael. In 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 15. It's been a while. But God had told Elijah to go to Damascus. Now that's the capital city of Syria. And to anoint Hazael as the king of Syria. And we read where Hazael waterboarded his king. He smothered him with a wet towel. That's exactly what that is. King Ben-Hadad. And in doing so he took the throne. And in the chapters between that one and the text where we are now, we saw how God had a purpose in using Hazael to afflict the children of Israel. And that continues here as we read in the next few verses. He's taken Gath and now he's turned toward Jerusalem. Verse 18, and Jehoash, now remember that's the same as Joash, it's the same king. Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the hallowed things that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, his fathers, king of Judah, had dedicated, and his own hallowed things, and all the gold that was found in the treasures of the house of the Lord, and in the king's house, and sent it to Hazael, king of Syria, and he went away from Jerusalem. Now remember, Jerusalem was the capital city of Judah, Samaria, capital city of Israel, in the days when the kingdoms were divided after Solomon. 
And although Jehoash, our king, did many good things, we see here that he was weak. And he didn't have the faith like David did. Not at all. Remember back in verse 2 of this chapter, if you just want to look back there at verse 2 in chapter 12, it says, And Jehoash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all the days, now listen to this, all his days wherein Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Now he took the, he was protected by Jehoiada the priest from the time he was born until he was seven or eight years old, and then he took the throne. So he had good instruction about the word of God from this priest who protected him from his own grandmother. And now he's been on the throne for over 20 years. And then we continue before this incident about the breaches of the house of the Lord came up. And then he continues on and we're about to read about the end of his life and what his epitaph would be. What would his eulogy say about his reign as king of Judah? And so what this tells me at the end of his days when he sent all these hallowed things to a Gentile king to keep him from attacking Jerusalem, what this tells me is that Jehoash was either no longer being instructed by Jehoiada or what I think is more likely, he was no longer receiving that instruction with a ready mind. He'd been instructed but he didn't receive it with a ready mind. Now, I've seen this pattern during most of my years in church where parents take their children to church faithfully and they teach them God's Word and they forbid them from engaging in sinful behavior, try to raise them upright. And often the children will make professions of faith and get baptized, sing in the choir, and serve the church, maybe even teach a Sunday school class. But for some of them, something happens when they get out on their own. When they grow up like Jehoash did, they begin to reject the faithful teaching of God's Word, the counsel of their parents, and the pastor's wise admonitions that he's preached to them in love. And that rebellious spirit, that flesh, rises up and it leads them away from the instruction of the Bible. Now, there's not a one of us sitting in here that hasn't done that before at some point. Not a one. But we're looking at Jehoash and why it would be he would walk away from the instruction of the Lord. And then they begin to suffer the consequences of their foolishness. Some of them repent and turn back to the Lord. But others never come back. And I've seen that, and perhaps you have if you've been in church very long. And it's sad. That's the only word I can think of. It's sad, but a lot of it can be fixed. There are some consequences that we're going to have to bear for our walking away from the Lord in the various aspects of our life. But he's always there for repentance. Thank God he's always there. His arms are always open. When one repents and says, Lord... I've wandered far away from you. I'm ready to come back. And he's there. In the last words about Jehoash's life, we see a picture 
of a king who God had given much to. He'd given much to his forefathers. And Jehoash, this king, took all of those things and bribed a Gentile king. You know, he could have just turned to the Lord and said, Lord, you knew before the foundations of the earth that this king, Hazael, was going to turn his face toward Jerusalem, toward the city of the capital of your chosen people, where the root of Je- and offspring of Jesse would come from and save his people from their sins. You knew he would come, that Hazael would come and try to attack us. And so we put ourselves in your hands. We repent of our sin. Deliver us if it be thy perfect will. He could have done that. But instead, Joash turned to these gods of silver and gold. Oh, he didn't make a god statue out of one or an image. He just took all of these precious things and used them to ward off evil Hazael. And it worked for a time because the last words of this verse are, and he went away from Jerusalem. So the money turned him back for now. Verse 19, and the rest of the acts of Joash, same king, and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Now, when we began reading in 1 Kings, I explained this to you because as a young Christian, as a young Bible student, when I came to the books of the kings, And I would see a statement like this, that it's written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. I would go over to 1 Chronicles or 2 Chronicles, try to find it and say, well, I don't see a whole lot here or or anything new. Well, that that word Chronicles doesn't mean only the book of 1 Chronicles. Chronicles are simply journals or recordings of history. And just like we have a lot of secular history, in fact, most secular history is not written about in the Bible. The Battle of the Alamo is not written about in the Bible, is it? It's okay. It doesn't have to be. But those secular historical documents would also be called chronicles, and we just happen to have a book called First and Second Chronicles. And the Jews didn't know it as such. They took First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, all as the book of the kings. So don't get too caught up in that and think, well, I don't see that anything else in the book of the Chronicles. That's a hopefully explanation that will help you out. Now, verse 20, And his servants, that is Jehoash's servants, arose and made a conspiracy and slew Joash in the house of Milo, which goeth down to Silah. I want you to notice something here. The three parts of this evil act of mutiny against God's anointed king. God put Jehoash on the throne. The first part is the word arose. The second part is made a conspiracy. And the third part is slew. The word slew. And this is how it happens in every case. Now, we don't know what these conspirators' reasons were for plotting this assassination, but we know they had a common motive, 
and that was to get rid of the king for some reason. The first word arose is what we're going to look at for a moment. And that word in the Hebrew language means stood up or established. Now, what was their place before they arose? They were servants, weren't they? They were servants. And if you drew it on a chart, you would see the king up here. And where would the servants be? Would they be above the king? How about next to him? They'd be below him, wouldn't they? They'd be below him. And that's the rightful place of a servant. And if Lucifer had remembered that, he wouldn't have tried to be next to God or above him. He would have said, I'm a servant. I'm a servant angel. And he'd still be there, but he didn't. And neither did those angels who went with him. So they arose. They stood up and established themselves. They were servants of the king. Their place was below the king, not equal to him or above him. So for a person to arise in a situation like this, he has to despise his current position. And he has to despise the person whom he serves as not being worthy. Here's an example. In Genesis chapter 4, Abel offered a blood sacrifice to God. And Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that that sacrifice was a more excellent sacrifice than Cain's sacrifice. Remember, Cain brought the fruit of the ground. He brought the fruit of his own labors. But Abel came the way God said, through blood. And God accepted Abel's sacrifice, and he rejected Cain's sacrifice. That's why you can break all the religions in the world that have ever existed down into two categories. The religion of Abel and the religion of Cain. The religion of Abel knows to come through the blood, and that is the blood of Jesus. And all the others come some other way. And it doesn't matter whether they're Buddhist or Hindus or whatever they may be. They don't come through the blood of Christ. So really, they, you don't have to learn about every single religion in such depth. Just learn that if they don't come through the blood of Christ, they are of the religion of Cain. And they are rejected by God. They're not accepted by him. And although Cain was older than Abel, his unrighteous position in the eyes of God was below Abel's position of righteousness. Abel wasn't above Cain because he was a better person. He certainly wasn't above him because he was older. He was not. He was the younger brother. But he was righteous, and Cain was not. And so that's where Cain was when he made his decision. And rather than coming to God through the blood of a sacrifice, Cain rose up. That's what the Bible says. And that is the same Hebrew word as the word arose in our text. He rose up against Abel. He tried to place himself either next to Abel or above Abel by taking his life. And the servants of Jehoash arose in the same way rather than accepting their places as servants of the king. Now the second part of this mutiny was the phrase made a conspiracy look back in verse 20 and his servants arose that's number one and two made a conspiracy which means they conspired now what is a conspiracy a conspiracy is a plan 
made by an unlawful alliance of persons. So it just takes two to make a conspiracy, although many conspiracies have hundreds of people involved. And we know there were at least two after we read the next verse. And anyone who conspires to commit a crime is a criminal, regardless of his part in the crime. Now, the smart criminals don't get their hands dirty, do they? They insulate themselves. They put a buffer between them and the actual acting out of the crime. If a, if a criminal, a so-called smart criminal, wants to sell drugs while he doesn't load up a bunch of cocaine in his trunk and go to some neighborhood and start peddling the cocaine, oh, no. He makes a phone call. And he says, hey, I need a certain amount of cocaine moved to this location over here, and I've got a buyer. And then that person says, all right, I'll make it happen. And then we get, they get what we call a mule, a courier, to actually pick up the drugs. Now, guess what happens when that courier gets caught? This smart criminal up here says, hey, I, it wasn't me. I was over here in Alaska, or I was down in South America or in Dallas, Texas. I, didn't, I wasn't there. And does that mean that he didn't do anything wrong? No, he's a criminal just like the person who got caught. It's the same with stealing a car or burglarizing a building or any other crime. And in this case, rather than remaining lawfully allied to serve the king, these servants had an alliance before they rose up. They had an alliance. They had an agreement we're going to serve the king. That was lawful. That was the right thing to do. And now they have agreed unlawfully to kill the king. Had they been content with their places as servants, they would have never arisen. They never would have. And had they not arisen, they never would have conspired to kill the king. So he started right here with an unlawful desire to arise, to, be, to despise their own position as servants, to despise the king enough to kill him. Now the third part of this mutiny is contained in the words, slew Jehoash. Look in the middle of verse 20. It said, they arose, made a conspiracy, and slew Joash in the house of Milo. This is the, the climax of the mutiny, the actual killing of the target. And this is the point of no return right here. Now in Texas, in the penal code, in chapter 15, there is the definition of a criminal conspiracy. And it says, now this is from state law, a person commits criminal conspiracy if with intent that a felony be committed, and killing is a felony, he agrees with one or more persons that they or one or more of them engage in conduct that would constitute the offense. And he or one or more of them performs an overt act in pursuance of the agreement. Now, one person doesn't make a conspiracy, but two or more do. And once any person is involved 
Anybody involved in that conspiracy, once any of those people is involved in the carrying out of the conspiracy, then they're all guilty of the offense. So if four of them sit down and say, hey, uh, let you and him fight, that's kind of the way that works. You know, I, I don't want to do it, and I don't want to do it, but I'll give you some money. And the hitman says, all right, that's enough money, I'll go take care of it. Once the hitman accomplishes that act, takes the shot or poisons his target, then all of those others who conspired with him are just as guilty as he is. Now, as you may have recognized, Satan is the author of these unlawful alliances. As Lucifer, he despised his position as a servant of God. He exalted himself and said he'd be like the Most High God. But listen to what Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9 says about his final days. It's in Revelation 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. His angels, even Satan, had co-conspirators, just like the ones who killed Joash. Now back in our text there in verse 20, Milo was a place that David used as a fortification. It means rampart. And so it would have been a place of military interest to Jehoash and his army, perhaps even a place of advantage where Judah could have fought off the Syrians. Now let's look at this again in verse 20. It says, And slew Joash in the house of Milo. Isn't that ironic? That such a place where he had paid Hazael not to come, not to fight against them, would still turn out to be where he died. Isn't that something? Not by the hands of the Syrians whom he bought off, but by his own servants. It says in verse 21, For Josachar the son of Shimeath and Jehozabad the son of Shomer, his servants, smote him and he died and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David and Amaziah his son reigned in his stead it said his servants smote him what an ironic phrase and what does this tell us about servants some are good and some are evil beware and it's so sad but beware of those closest to you what did Jesus say would happen when he came? He said, I came not to bring peace but a sword. Now, we studied that. That doesn't mean that Jesus didn't come to bring peace to the world, but not the peace they were looking for. They were looking for a peace from the Romans. They didn't want the Romans to rule them anymore. Jesus said, I came not to bring peace but a sword, to set a man at variance against his father. And he goes on and lists those who would be against each other. And he said, his foes? His enemies shall be they of his own household. So beware of those closest to you. Do we love them? Of course we do. Now listen to this passage where Jesus spoke to his disciples. It's found in Luke chapter 12, verses 42 through 45. Luke chapter 12, verses 42 through 45. And Jesus was teaching them a parable. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household 
to give them their portion of meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. So there's a good servant right there. Of a truth I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. But, and if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens, and to eat and drink and to be drunken. And then he goes on to tell that that servant's got a bad ending. So Josachar and Jehoshaphat in our text were the wicked servants, just like the ones in Jesus' parable. And verse 21 says he died and they buried him. And that reminds us that this is our lot, whether you're a king or whether you're a servant. This body's not going to last. And Amaziah, his son, reigned in his stead, which reminds us that we're all replaceable. Never think otherwise. When you die, there will be somebody to fill your shoes. If you quit your job, they'll hire somebody else to take your place. Don't ever think that you're not replaceable. Now go right into chapter 13 and verse 1. In the three and twentieth year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria and reigned seventeen years. Now remembering that first and second kings deal with two nations. Israel, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, excluding Benjamin and, and Judah, and then the southern kingdom, which is called Judah, even though it consists mostly of the tribes of Benjamin and, and Judah. And so now we turn our attention to Israel, to that northern kingdom. In verse 2, And he, that's Jehoahaz, did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therefrom. Now we remember that Jehoash, our last king, the one in Judah, was a good king. But he did not tear down the high places where the people burnt incense and carried out their false religion. He just left it alone. Well, Jehoahaz is not a good king with a few weaknesses. He is straight up evil. No bones are made about it. He followed Jeroboam. He had some good examples he could have followed between Jeroboam and the day he was put on the throne. But he followed Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Jeroboam, if you remember, was the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel after God divided it from Judah in Rehoboam's day. That was Solomon's son who didn't receive his father's instruction. Verse 3, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Hazael king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad the son of Hazael, all their days. This verse starts with, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And it follows the prior verse, which tells how Jehoahaz made Israel to sin. Now, Israel sinned willingly, but their king led them down that road. It was easy. It had been done before. All Jehoahaz had to do is look back at how Jeroboam got the people to follow him as he followed a false religion. Or he could look back at Ahab 
and Jezebel and how they did the same with the church of the golden calf. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 34, righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And when the people of any nation, even Israel, the apple of God's eye, when the people of any nation throw off God's righteousness, they can expect to be delivered into the hand of their enemies. And the United States is no different. Just in case you think, well, we won't go down that road. We're already down that road. I don't know how far down the road we are, but we're way down it. And it's not God's fault that Hazael, the king of Syria, and his son Ben-Hadad would afflict Israel. It's the fault of the wicked people. Here's a kingdom truth. I don't come up with too many of those. And really, it's, this is the Bible. When people reject God's righteousness, they also reject God's judgment. When people reject God's righteousness, they also reject God's judgment. Watch what happens when God continues to judge this country, the one we're living in right now. There are going to be religious people who turn against God. They always were against him, by the way, but it's going to show outwardly. And they're going to turn to the church of the golden calf outwardly and every other way. But you watch what happens to a righteous prophet, to a righteous, to a Christian who accepts God's righteousness. You know what we do? We also accept God's judgment. Now, I don't wish that God would deliver us into the hands of the Chinese or any other foreign country. I don't wish that. But if and when it happens... I'm going to say, God, you're righteous. This country had it coming. You've given this country space to repent for many, many years. And as a whole, except for the remnant who are faithful to you, as a whole, this country has turned away from God and has stayed turned away from God and has ignored those opportunities to repent. Listen as we close to what the prophet Jeremiah said to the people of Judah and this is in Jeremiah 8, 14. Jeremiah 8, 14. He said to these people, Why do we sit still? Assemble yourselves and let us enter into the defensed cities and let us be silent there. For the Lord our God hath put us to silence and given us water of gall. That's bitterness. Water of gall to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. Now, Jeremiah doesn't sound like someone who threw off God's righteousness and threw off God's judgment. He accepted that God was righteous. And therefore, the judgment God brought upon Judah in his day, he said, we had it coming, folks. We had it coming. So Israel has nothing to complain about when they look up and they see the Syrians attacking them in their own land. And you notice that God delivered them into Hazael's hand and into his son's hand, his son Ben-Hadad. Now you see Ben-Hadad used several times in the Old Testament, and that was a common name for a Syrian king. It wasn't just one king, because Hazael's king was Ben-Hadad, and now Hazael's son will be Ben-Hadad. Just like the name Caesar in Rome Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar and Octavius Caesar and, and all of those, and Herod in, in Judah. All right, well, we'll stop right there at the end of verse 3 and pick up, Lord willing, next week 
with verse 4. Let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the truth of your word and how you would enable and empower uh, we who are weak in the flesh to be able to teach it and to uh, help the people. And Lord, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts what we've read here today, that we may learn from it, that we may be edified in our Christian lives. And Lord, if one is not a Christian who has heard this today, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God, would be that which draws them unto you, that they may be saved. And we pray this in Jesus' name.